Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Have you ever been hated simply because you identified with Christ and his ways? What about before you came to Christ? Did you ever hate Christians? Or look down on them in any way? You know, if you answered yes to either one of those questions, then you really have experienced what I'm calling an ancient enmity. An ancient enmity or a hostility that really can be traced all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way back to Cain and Abel. Now last week we discussed about half of this story. We only got through verse 10, and I have an ambitious goal this morning that we get through the rest of the chapter and not just focus on the particulars, but I hope to step back and really look at the the chapter as a whole the way I think it was intended to be looked at. So as we discuss the rest of this story, I want you to keep in mind that this story isn't just about Cain and Abel. It's about the enmity or the hostility that exists between the people of God and the people of Satan and the people of the world. It's an ancient enmity that is still alive and well today. And so we're going to talk about this ancient enmity and what to do about it. I've organized the the story of Cain and Abel into eight movements. We talked last week about the first movement here, the conflict between Cain and and Abel. Adam and Eve had two sons, firstborn being Cain and the secondborn being Abel. And we discussed how by faith, Abel brings to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. God had regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. It was primarily because Abel was motivated by faith and Cain was not. This makes Cain angry and downcast at, I think, God ultimately, but certainly at his brother Abel. So in the second movement, the intervention, verses 6 and 7, God invites Cain to do what's right. And he warns Cain to turn from his anger Because God can see that through this sinful desire, that this anger that's burning in in Cain's chest, that God knew that this sin was crouching, like like a thug crouching at his door. Anger was like the seed form of murder that was crouching at his door, ready to pounce upon him. And sure enough, God said, you must rule over it. But sure enough, Cain didn't listen to him, and that's exactly what happened in verse 8. We have the murder. Cain didn't listen to God's intervention, but his sinful desires pounced upon him, and his own desires led him off into death, the murder of his own brother. He did it out in a field, out away from where everyone could hear him, thinking that surely no one would know what he had done, but God knew. God heard God saw. 
Though Genesis never records a single actual word that Abel spoke, Hebrews 11.4 tells us that though it, through Abel's faith, though he died, he still speaks. His faith is still speaking to us today. And that brought us to the confrontation in verses 9 through 10 as God confronts Cain after the murder of Abel, his brother, and he comes to him and he says, Cain, where is Abel, your brother? To which Cain responds with a bold-faced lie. He says, I don't know. And then he utters what has become a famous loveless slogan. Don't ever say this slogan. You're, you're repeating Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? So in response to Cain's loveless epitaph for his brother, God exclaims, Cain, what have you done? God says that Abel's blood is crying out to him from the ground. Here again, we, we see that Abel never spoke a word in his life that is recorded in Scripture, but now not only did, does his faith speak beyond the grave, but his blood is crying out from the ground to God for justice. And God hears that cry for justice. God heard Abel's innocent blood, and we discussed last week about how Abel here is to remind us of Christ in that both Abel and Christ shed innocent blood at the hands of wicked men. They both were innocent when they died of the reason that they were killed was, was not because of anything wrong that they had done. But Hebrews 12.4 tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word over us than the blood of Abel. Instead of crying out to the ground, from the ground for justice against us, the, the blood of Jesus through faith in him actually cries out over us a word of justification, a word of cleansing, a word of forgiveness. It's a better word. I mean, how amazing is it that you know, we, not like Cain, we didn't rise up and, and kill our brother. We rose up and we killed the Son of God. And yet, by the grace of God, that, that death of, of the Son of God doesn't need to cry out over us condemnation, but rather cleansing and forgiveness, healing. That's where we stopped last week. That was my, my sermon in a nutshell last week so as I said I want to finish the rest of this story this morning before stepping back and making some big picture observations if you progress to the next movement here we see the curse the curse on Cain verses 11 through 15 God proceeds now after confronting him for his sins to curse Cain as a punishment for his sins. And this is on top of the, the curse that God has placed on all of creation because of Adam's sin. God curses Cain here especially. Look at verses 11 and 12. Let's read those to, again together here. It says, And now you, Cain, are cursed from the ground which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a, a wanderer on the earth. We see two aspects of this curse here, don't we? Cain was 
cursed from the ground, and God declares him instead to be a fugitive and a wanderer. You know, Cain shed Abel's innocent blood on the ground, and God describes the ground here almost as if it were a man that was forced to open up its mouth and, and drink the blood of, of his brother Abel. And so the curse then is a curse from the ground that he will no longer not just have to battle the thorns and the thistles as a farmer, but at, under this curse, he wouldn't bear any fruit at all. You say, no problem, maybe it's time for a lateral career move. I hear there's an opening in the position of family shepherd. God says, not so fast. Cain's sin would also cause him to be on the run, a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth. No doubt estranged from Adam and Eve and from uh, others in his family that he no doubt would have loved to continue a relationship with. And it even says here that he, he was forced to, to wander far away from the place where God seemed to continue to be meeting with Adam and Eve and his, the first family here outside of the Garden of Eden. So now at this point, we can, we can step back from this curse a little bit, and we can say, as heavy as this curse appears to be, we can just draw a conclusion about it. We can say this. It's a lot less than Cain deserved, isn't it? It's a lot less than Cain probably deserved. God could have righteously put Cain to death for this, couldn't he? I mean, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to to guess that the, the penalty for killing someone is that you might lose your life as well. God hasn't given that law yet. He wouldn't give that until Genesis chapter 9. But that certainly is the logical punishment that you would surmise. And yet, even though this punishment was less than Cain deserved, Cain can't help but complain to God that this punishment is more than he can bear. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. You know, Cain's lamenting here his punishment. I think he regrets what he did because of what he's experiencing in these consequences. He laments being driven from the ground. He laments even being driven from God's presence. He laments being driven from others as a fugitive and a wanderer. And last of all here, he, he even has the audacity to complain to God that someone might kill him. Right? The killer doesn't want to be killed. So Cain's feeling great sorrow and grief here because of the consequences of his sin. But don't mistake here Cain's sorrow or his grief for true repentance. I don't think even Cain's sorrow about being, having to wander away from the presence of the Lord should be mistaken for repentance. It's not. You know, there's a, a, a type of sorrow over sin that can be decidedly selfish. The Apostle Paul would later label this as worldly grief. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief 
produces death. Right? He's contrasting these two different types of sorrow over sin. You can have a worldly sort of grief that merely regrets what you did. Sort of the classic example of this is Judas. Judas regretted what he did when he betrayed Jesus. But his regret over that didn't lead him to repentance and to salvation. Meanwhile, on the other hand, we have Peter, who's, who also betrayed the Lord that night, didn't he, in a different way? Turned his back on the Lord, denied the Lord. And yet, Peter's life evidences a repentance, a godly sorrow that led him to salvation. I think what we see here in Cain is a worldly sorrow, a regret over his circumstances and over his consequences, but not a sorrow that that led him to repent of his sins and fall at the feet of God for mercy. And yet, amazingly, God takes pity on Cain anyway, doesn't he? Look at verse 15. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. God shows pity to Cain, even though Cain didn't deserve it. Seven here, sevenfold vengeance that God promises. Seven is the number of completeness. And so God is promising here, if anyone brings Cain to a premature death, that God would completely avenge him. God himself would do that. And so God graciously removes the fear of, of a violent death. And he does it by placing a mark on Cain. What, what is this mark? You ever wonder that? Well, guess what? The text doesn't say. And neither does it say anywhere else in, in Scripture what the mark is. So I'm left to conclude that the point isn't what is the mark. The point is that God marked him and was remarkably gracious to Cain. Breathtakingly merciful. God was not fair to Cain. He was merciful. He had pity on him. The sixth movement here, the wandering. Verse 16. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Nod literally means wandering. Right? So, this wasn't a land out there that was already named Nod. It was named Wandering because of its first inhabitant. Cain the Wanderer is the first one who pioneered this, this land east of Eden, and it became, it, it, it became named after him, Wandering. I, I think it's really sad that, that Cain settled for this. He settled for merely being marked so that he might remain alive. And I personally can't help but wonder what it, what it would have looked like if Cain rather would have insisted on being marked by God's forgiveness. If Cain would have truly repented. But it's sad. Cain, he goes off and he leaves the presence of the Lord and he, he indeed wanders in, in this land of wandering. Now, the seventh movement here, the line of Cain, verses 17 through 24 and what we have here is the, is the genealogy that Harry read for us just a few moments ago. It's the, the line of Cain. And I said at the beginning that this story 
isn't just about Cain and Abel. If we truly want to see what Genesis chapter 4 is about, we need to realize that it's more than just about Cain. It's about the line of Cain, and it's about the line of Abel and Seth. So in verse 17, it, it begins to tell us this. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and, and bore him Enoch. Before I go on in his genealogy here, I've I got to kind of step back and, and comment on something here. Some people get tripped, over, tripped up over the fact that Cain had a wife. You say, now wait a minute, where did, where did Cain find a wife? Yeah. Right? Don't get tripped up over this. I think the answer is really quite simple. Hopefully you have your Bibles open. If you look here in Genesis chapter 5 and, and look down at verse 4, it says that the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And in total, Adam lived 930 years. And it says, and he had other sons and daughters. What were Adam and Eve doing for those 930 years? I think they were being fruitful and multiplying, right? There, was, there were, by this time, many, many people on the earth. And, in fact, it says here that Adam and Eve didn't even have Seth until, he, until Adam was 130 years old. So, don't get tripped up over this. Adam, or um, Cain certainly found a wife amongst the family. And you might say, now, wait a minute, I'm, now I'm tripping up over that. Isn't it wrong to marry a brother or a sister? And I would, my, the answer to that is yes, it is, but, but not yet, right? God didn't institute that as wrong until he gave the law to Moses. However, at, at the beginning, it was necessary for the first few generations, especially to marry within the family, as odd as that sounds to us. You know, even Abraham was married to his half-sister, Sarah. So anyways, I don't want to get into that too much more than that, but I, I did want to address it. I didn't want to just, just gloss over it. And I would just say to you, if this is something that you stumble over, if it's something you wonder about, I can point you to some really in-depth discussions about that if, you're, if you have some more interest in learning about that. But the point is here that Cain, in his wandering, takes his wife with him, and he also begins to be fruitful and multiply out there in, in the land of wandering. And I think taken as a whole, we can see here that God's, God's mark of protection worked. Right? It was, it, it, I, I would say, conclude here from this genealogy that not only did, did Cain survive, he flourished. He flourished out in the land of wandering. And as we're going through this genealogy, it's as if we kind of zoom out here for a minute and Generation after generation, we're just getting the name of, of someone, right? On down through the years until we zoom back in here on Lamech, who is the seventh generation from Adam. There's that number seven again. And when we look at Lamech's offspring in particular, we see that we see some, some tremendous cultural developments. They're not struggling. This isn't survivor, right? They're out there. They're building tents and they're, they're uh, developing uh, flocks. They're writing music. They're forging weapons and tools. I mean, 
Don't, don't have what C.S. Lewis used to call chronological snobbery, right? thinking that our current generation, we are the only ones that are smart. Right? Man, these people were, were really, really close to the, the way human beings were originally created to be. If anything, we've sort of kind of wound down a little bit here, haven't we? These people were, were intelligent. They were skillful. They were developing culture. And so we see here that not only did, did Cain survive, he flourished. And I think as we focus in here on the seventh generation, we kind of drop back in and see how the line of Cain is doing. And we're looking at Lamech in particular. I think that's who we're designed to look at here. What we see here is a magnification of Cain's wickedness. Lamech shows how in the line of Cain, wickedness has absolutely flourished. Lamech is, is really a magnification of Grandpa Cain. He's standing on Cain's shoulders, if you will. You notice here that, that Lamech here is the first one in Scripture who we are told breaks the God-given pattern for marriage. One man, one woman, one, one lifetime. Right? He takes two wives. He's the first one. How'd you like to be known as the pioneer of that? Right? That's Lamech. But more than that, I think what we're really intended to focus in on here is Lamech's boast. He boasts of killing a young boy. It's, the Hebrew word here is yeled. It's the, the, really the word for a child. Boasts in, in killing him just because this young boy or this young child struck him in some way or wounded him. He proudly proclaims his, just boasts about his wickedness. He says, if Cain's wickedness earned him a seven-fold revenge, then mine surely is worthy of 77-fold. Only I don't think Lamech is picturing God def defending him here. I think he's boasting that, hey, nobody better mess with me. One commentator called Lamech a remorseless, carnivorous man. Really stuck in my mind. And so this is the line of Cain. And the chapter ends then with sort of a contrasting line, the line of Seth. Or really it's the, the line of the re, revived line of Abel, isn't it? This is, we started down this line, a, a godly seed with Abel, but... But Cain seemingly snuffed that out. And, you know, as the camera panned over away from that sad scene and, and panned over to the line of Cain, we left Adam and Eve in, in, in a pretty decimated state, didn't we? I mean, their, their oldest son was a murderer of their second-born son, and a, he was a fugitive and a wanderer away from God. And the godly son that they had is now long dead and, and buried in the ground. You have to wonder, is, is the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve to send a, a promised deliverer through the seed of the woman, is that promise been thwarted? As Cain is flourishing out in the wilderness? And fortunately now, by the grace of God, we see as we, we come back to these last two verses that God's plans have not been thwarted. 
God blesses Adam and Eve with another son who they name Seth. And notice again that Adam and Eve's faith really, I think, shines through in what they, they name him here. This, the name Seth sounds like the Hebrew word for appointed or granted. I really think Eve gets it here. She gets that Seth is a gift from God. and In fact, she says it right here that, that God has appointed or granted Seth to them in place of Abel. Right? She sees this as a reviving of the line of Abel, a line, the line of the godly seed. And sure enough, we see here that as Seth starts a family, it is at this time that it's reported that people finally begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Begin gathered together and to worship God together. So that's it. We, we, we made it through the whole chapter, right? Woo! That was, that was a marathon of information, right? But I, 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 I plowed through that because I want you to see the, now the big picture of all this. Right? And the big picture here is that, as I've said, this is not really just a story about Cain and Abel. It's not really just about the lessons we can learn from, from the particulars of Cain and Abel's story. There's a bigger thing going on here. It's about the line of Cain and the line of Seth. You know, I've mentioned a lot that Genesis 3.15 is such a key verse, not only in the book of Genesis, but in understanding your entire Bible. Right? I've been bringing it up almost every week. Let's just read it again here. Speaking to the serpent, God says here in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the proto-evangelium. That just means the first gospel. In this verse, we see we see where God promises that a seed of the woman will be bruised by a seed of the serpent, but the seed of the woman will, in fact, bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. And this seed of the woman is none other than Christ. It's the first announcement of good news. Christ will come, and though he would be wounded, he would win the final victory over the serpent. He would be, there would be a coming deliverer. And of course, from our vantage point, we, as I said, we know this is Jesus Christ. We know his name. But there's a, another monumentally important aspect to this verse that we really haven't focused on much, in, and that is what is said here at the beginning of this verse, that God was going to put enmity between, between the serpent and between the woman enmity or hostility between not only Christ and Satan, that's ultimately who the enmity is between, but we see now through this story of Cain and Abel that not only is there enmity between Christ and Satan, but there is enmity between those in the line of Christ and those in the line of the serpent, all who identify with them. So could this enmity be pictured any earlier in history than with the first brothers, right? It didn't take long for this enmity to emerge, did it? Firstborn Cain, secondborn Abel, enmity. And could it be any more memorable than what happened between these brothers, the type of relationship that these two lines would have? Cain tries to rise up and kill, and 
crush the line of the seed of the woman and seems to succeed. Both came from the same mother, yet one is clearly the seed of the woman and the other is clearly the seed of the serpent. One so clearly walked by faith and the other one clearly did not. The, the lines have been clearly drawn here right from Genesis chapter 4. And if you will understand this concept, you will see that this will bring light to the rest of the book of Genesis as we see these two lines sort of developing in parallel through the book of Genesis. And the line of Cain will become the ungodly Gentile nations and the line of Abel or Seth becomes ultimately, through Noah, becomes the nation of Israel through whom God brings the Christ who is blessed forever and is a blessing to the whole world. It begins right here in, in Genesis chapter 4. And so why, did, why should that matter to you today? I mean, beyond understanding the book of Genesis, beyond understanding your Bible, if that wasn't enough, right, that's a big deal, <laughs> right? Being able to, to understand what's going on here, that these aren't just a collection of, of good moral tales, but there's something bigger going on here. That's, that's really important. But if that's not enough for you this morning, let's, take it, let's make this even more personal for you. Why should this matter for you? This matters because these lines of enmity continue to persist down to this day. It is alive and well in this world. Uh, it may not always be so clear and distinct as what we read here, but make no mistake, it is there. It, is, it may be buried beneath a veneer of good manners and political correctness, but it is there, is it not? So the question remains, if this ancient enmity is still exists to this day, what should we do about it? What should we do about it? I just have three brief applications for you this morning about how we as followers of Christ should respond to this enmity, this hostility that exists in the world. The first thing that I would say is this. You should expect it, right? You should expect it. Have you ever wandered into a hostile situation without expecting it? I hate that, right? I, I would rather know that calamity is about to fall than, than to be surprised. I just don't want to be surprised by it, right? I don't want to be taken off guard. It's so much better to know what you're walking into. And the scriptures are not shy towards those who follow God and letting you know, hey, you should expect hostility here. John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And of course, John, as a disciple of Christ, he heard this from Jesus himself. Je Jesus said in John 15, 18 through 20, that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master, Jesus says. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Beloved of God, listen to me. True identification with Christ will not endear you to the world. It will not. And furthermore, we are not called to be endeared to the world. We are called to be endeared to Christ. 
But as we are endeared to Christ and he is endeared to us, make no mistake, this will bring about an ancient enmity that is as old as Cain and Abel. And count on it. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. In fact, brace yourself for it. Secondly, I would say this. You should actually rejoice in it. You rejoice in it. That's what the scriptures say. This isn't some naive suggestion here that, that this hostility isn't going to hurt. Because it is. It's going to hurt. It's going to mean persecution and for some people, death, suffering, rejection, loss of family, loss of friends, loss of loved ones, loss of of status, loss of job promotions. It's going to hurt. But yet, even through the pain, there is a foundation of joy, beloved. There's a, there's a foundation of joy in this. Jesus told us to rejoice. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the same verse when it's quoted in the Gospel of Luke, I think it says, leap for joy. Rejoice and leap for joy. Abel was the first in a long line of those who would be hated and persecuted on his account. He wouldn't be the last. I'm not talking here, don't misunderstand me, about being persecuted for doing something wrong or for doing something dumb, right, that deserves some kind of, like, retribution, right? I'm talking about the kind of hostility that's directed at you falsely for no other reason but because you identify with Christ and his ways. Jesus says to rejoice. He says this, that you bear the family resemblance when you face this kind of hostility. Thirdly, and lastly, you should respond in truth and love, right? I guess you could state this one also in the negative, that you should not respond to this enmity like Cain. Our New Testament reading this morning, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 said this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. What I really want to say here is this, that the enmity that is in the world is experienced two ways, both ways, right? We, we think a lot about how Cain was full of enmity towards his brother Abel, so much so that he killed him. But have you ever thought about what feelings Abel might have had towards his brother Cain? Do you think there was ever a time when Abel looked at his brother Cain and he said, man, that guy just irritates me, right? We are just like oil and vinegar. We are, on everything, we disagree, we, we butt heads constantly separated and at odds? I think so. I think surely Abel felt the enmity as well, not just Cain. 
felt the friction. You know, light and darkness repel one another, right? And both feel it. And there, there's a sense in which the enmity that you feel as a child of God toward the evil that's in the world is a good thing. In fact, if you don't feel it, there's, there may be something wrong. John says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So what does that mean? I thought you said we're supposed to love. Now you're saying don't love the world. Well, in a sense, we are not to love the world, right? It is good for the children of God to be grieved by the lies and the corruption and the sin and the murder and, and the sensuality and the perversion and the wickedness of the world. It's good for us to, to, to be re, repulsed by that and to be grieved by it, right? In this sense, we are not to love the world. In, in fact, even when we look at ourselves as those who walk in the light, and we're having our deeds exposed and we're confessing our sins and we look within and we even see some of these same things still lingering in us and we say, God, shine your light on that. God, I, I repent of it. I turn from it. Have mercy on me for that. I detest that even in myself. God, deliver me from that, from worldly sinful passions. So in this way, we are not to love the world. We're to be grieved by it. Even more so, we are to cast the light of truth on it. We're to be like the prophets of old that witness, witness to the truth. Witnesses to the truth that nobody wanted to hear. But we must be careful how we wield this truth, right? This truth is not to be taken up in a Cain-like hate for those around us. We're not to to simply shake our fists and curse the darkness. We're to shine our light into the darkness and to also even more than that, to love our enemies. What ca characterizes us as children of God is both light and love, truth and love. We are to love our enemies because Christ loved us when we were still his enemies. Now, don't be discouraged by this. This sounds really hard, right? <laughs> Listen, only one person who ever lived perfectly embodied both truth and love. And that's Jesus Christ. In him, truth and love are perfectly expressed. Therefore, I would say that we can only love like him as we abide in him. Picture yourself standing at, at the shore, looking out at the, at the wide ocean. Our hearts are, are, are in need of, of being filled up with God's love. Right? For we can't... We can't love our enemies and our own resources. We need God's love to be poured in, into our hearts. And it, it, we may wonder, God, can you fill me up with that kind of love? Is, it, is there enough love to go around? And uh, picture yourself standing at the ocean, looking out and, and seeing the vastness of the ocean. And picture your heart being like a little communion cup. You know those little communion cups we pass around? 
you can dip that thing into the water and, and it'll be filled up instantly and, and there's no dis- diminishment to the vastness of God's love. His love is like a, a vast, endless ocean. His love is measureless. So we can only love as He fills us and as we abide in Him and He enables us to love even our enemies. It's a high calling. It's a high calling. Listen to me now in closing. Jesus speaks both truth and love to you today who are here within the sound of my voice. Jesus speaks truth to you. He would have you to know before you leave this place that you are a sinner in need of salvation. And yet, Jesus also shows love to you today by having announced that he himself accomplished that salvation for you. You are a sinner in need of being saved, and Jesus, in love, accomplished that salvation for you by dying on the cross, by being buried and rising again on the third day. Victory over sin and unbelief. Therefore, the last thing I want to say to you is this. Just don't, like Cain, regard the sin in your life with mere regret. But go all the way in and realize that your sin is an offense to God. And repent of it. Turn of it. Turn from it. And instead, turn to the provision of Christ. Join the line of Seth and Abel calling on the name of the Lord. For the Bible says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray.